Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 23. Three verses this morning, 37 to 39. We are continuing in our study of Matthew. As we do every single Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection. Every Sunday, not just on Easter Sunday. And so we are continuing along in our study of the book of Matthew, and we come to the very end of chapter 23, verses 37 to 39 is where we're going to be this morning. I want you to, as you're turning, I want you to just imagine for just a second the situation that the Jews have been in. We're going to transport our minds, if we can, and put ourselves in the shoes of a Jew back in Jewish history. We're in exile in the nation of Babylon. The year is somewhere around 597 B.C. And we're here because the nation of Babylon, the depraved and wicked nation of Babylon, has sent their armies into Israel. And they have walked into Jerusalem and they have conquered many in the city and they have taken many, including you and me, and they have hauled us off to Babylon as their slaves. They've left some still in Israel, but they've taken us and many of our neighbors along back to Babylon where we will live. There is a prophet who lives among us. His name is Ezekiel. And one day he's sitting by the river on his 30th birthday, and the Lord shows him a vision. And he is coming to report what he saw in this vision. He receives this word from the Lord, and the vision and the message that he got from the Lord is not a happy one. It's actually a very sad one. See, you and your kin were exiled as a result of sin. We were all idolatrous. We were led by kings, and we were led by priests, and we were led by various authorities into idolatry. But in our houses, we and our spouses and our kids dabbled in idol worship. We neglected the worship of the one true God at the temple in Jerusalem, and instead made little wooden images made in our image, and we worshipped that. See, we would rather have worshipped a God made out of convenience, a God that didn't really care too much about how we lived on the day-to-day, didn't really care about lives of holiness, didn't really care how much we really loved Him, and a God that we felt like we could persuade perhaps a little more easily to give us rain or to give us food or to give us the things that we need. We felt like we could persuade this little carved idol a little bit more than Yahweh who was worshipped at the temple and who seemed to really care about how we lived our lives during the week. He really cared about what was going on inside and that was scrutiny too much for us to bear. So we pushed that away in favor of an idol. And for that, Yahweh has disciplined us and has sent us into exile here in Babylon. And so Ezekiel comes to you and your, your neighbors and your family and me, and he tells us all what he saw. 
He saw the temple back home in Jerusalem. And he saw idols there in the temple through a hole in the wall. He could see that there was idol worship going on inside the temple. These idols were around the temple. And there were some people left in Jerusalem, including some leadership, that were there in the temple bowing down to worship in the temple of God, these same false gods that we used to worship, that are in our houses here in Babylon. And then in his vision, out of the temple comes this chariot. And it's got wheels in each of the four corners, and it's carried by angels. And on top of that, that chariot, there's a throne. And on top of the throne is the glory of God. Now, the glory of God, that phrase, glory of God, is the way the Old Testament describes seeing the full weight and majesty of God. So Ezekiel says, he sees on top of that throne, which is on top of a chariot, which is on top of the shoulders of angels, the glory of God. This is a problem because the glory of God is supposed to be inside the temple. The glory of God is supposed to be sitting on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That's what the priests come in and sacrifice to and, and, and worship and interact with. It's like a portal into heaven's throne room, if you will. But you see, Ezekiel's vision says that the glory of the Lord has deserted his temple. He's packing up and he's leaving his temple. So this is now their temple. This is not the Lord's house anymore. This is their house. So the glory of the Lord has deserted his temple and left it there, just a pile of rocks standing there in Jerusalem. And some ten years after Ezekiel tells this vision to you, the temple would then be desecrated by Babylon and they would haul off the remaining neighbors to meet you in exile in Babylon and in slavery. See, this is now the second time in your history that you have been separated from the Lord because of sin, the first being the Garden of Eden. So now we move forward in the story. 500 or so, 600 or so years. The exiles have returned back to the land, but it's under new management. In fact, it's been a revolving door of management, like an apartment complex, just new management all the time. It's never the Jews. The Jews are never the ones in, in, in management anymore. It's always nation after nation after nation. But one thing has remained constant. Israel's leadership is still as corrupt as it always was. But see, this time, instead of carving little images and encouraging you to worship them in your home and do all of those kinds of things, the leadership has now encouraged the entire nation into some extreme form of fundamentalism where the outward appearance of holiness mattered much more than what was inside. Obedience to the law, that's how you achieve righteousness. Righteousness can be had on its own. On the outside, everyone appeared to be following the law, but on the inside, they didn't really care about a life of holiness. They didn't really care about God. 
They didn't really love him. They were bored by him. They were back again to Ezekiel's day. Same song, second verse. Back again to Israel's day, worshiping a false god who cared more about the outward appearance appearance of obedience to the law and nothing about the inside, nothing about the heart of obedience. So here comes another man, a man by the name of Jesus who in just the previous passage that we talked about last week, has eviscerated the Jewish leadership and has told them in no uncertain terms that they are going to hell specifically for this same kind of idolatry that they were exiled for back in Ezekiel's day. And he gives them in the previous passage seven woes. And each of these woes is basically a warning saying that pain is coming. That's what the woe means. Pain is coming to you. You need to be warned. But the last woe, the seventh woe, he tells them that they're guilty for Israel's sins in every generation. Everything that your forefathers did, everything in the past, everything we read about in the Old Testament, you are guilty of. You're right there along with them. They are right there in the generations that went to exile. They're right there with Adam. They're right there sacrificing their children to false gods. And because they are guilty, he says, judgment is going to fall on this generation that's standing right in front of Jesus at that moment. And that brings us to our text this morning. Matthew 23, 37 to 39. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Pray that as we've read this text, you would now make it true to us, open our minds and our eyes and our ears, that we may see and hear and believe what your word says. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus and his disciples in this scene, just to remind you, are standing right in the middle of the temple precincts. And Jesus, having just condemned the Jewish leadership now, is going to issue one final lament over the city. Just out loud there in front of the leadership, in front of his disciples, in front of everybody that might be listening, he's going to give one final lament. And in this lament, he's going to remind them of why they're going to be punished with one last glimmer of hope. But first, I want us to look at Israel's crime and their punishment. Look at verse 37 and 38. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Now first I want you to notice, we're going to look at two parts, the crime and the punishment. But I want you to notice 
first the crime for which Jesus condemns them. First, they've, they've killed the prophets and have stoned those who have been sent to it. Now remember what a prophet of God really is. A prophet is one to whom God has put His word in their mouth. So when they go to the people, they can utter the words, Thus saith the Lord, because what I'm about to tell you is a direct quote from the heart of God. He sends them a word and they go and proclaim this to the people to which they are sent. Now sometimes that word is foretelling means that it tells the future. This is what is going to happen, or this is what's going about, about to happen if this doesn't happen first. And then other times it's forth-telling. means that he tells them something that's true, something they must do. And normally that thing that they tell them, that, he, that the prophet tells them, is that they need to repent for sin. Now historically, I don't know if you've read the Old Testament, this hasn't gone over very well. Jeremiah, you may remember, he's called the weeping prophet because his message was so strong and no one listened. Ezekiel had a strong message and he's told by the Lord, no one's going to listen to you when you say this. Isaiah went to kings. They didn't listen to him either. Elijah, whom we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, went to Ahab who was king over Israel and got blamed for all of Ahab's problems. Mostly, Israel, whether kings or commoners, didn't receive the message of the prophets very well at all. But it wasn't just the prophets. It's also, he says, people that were sent to it. Not just prophets that come to give a message, but people that are sent to it. Jesus has just, in the previous passage, referenced Cain and Abel. You remember that story back in Genesis chapter 4, nearly the beginning of the Bible? Abel is a righteous person. Cain is his brother. Abel comes to get, they both come to give their first fruits. Abel really does give his first fruits. Cain doesn't. And what does he receive for not giving his first fruits, his best offering? God rejects his sacrifice. And he's told why by God himself. But instead of listening to God, heeding his warning and turning, jealousy overcomes him and he goes to Cain and he kills him while he's in the field because of his jealousy. So Cain represents the nation of Israel as a whole and Abel represents those who live righteously who are sent to the nation of Israel by God to provide for them an example of what it means to live a righteous life. And Israel, like Cain before them, just murder those that are being sent. So that's the first crime. They kill the prophets and those that are sent to it. But their second crime is that they're unwilling to repent of it. There's an unwillingness in their heart to actually repent. So in spite of this open rebellion towards God, in spite of this open, I'm not repenting and killing all the messengers you sent to, in spite of all of that, I want you to see that Jesus in this passage has compassion toward them. You see that? You can practically hear it in his voice as you read it. You can hear the tone of compassion as he surveys the history of Israel's rejection of God. And in spite of all of that, he stands there in the place of God and has compassion on the people 
who have betrayed him and who are about to crucify him. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? Being gathered under the wings of God is a sign of protection. It's a way that people have talked about receiving comfort from the Lord. Jesus is saying, I would have given this to you. I wanted to give this to you. Deuteronomy 32.11 says, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. He's describing God's love for His children. Psalm 17.8, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 36.7, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Psalm 91, 4, He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. So Jesus tells both Israel and her leadership in Jerusalem that in spite of all the murder of the prophets, in spite of all their ignorance, in spite of their hard-heartedness, in spite of all of those things, He still would have forgiven them. Can you just stop and just think about that for just a second? There is not much more heinous of an offense that you could ever do to God than killing His Son. And that even is concluded in His forgiveness. I would have forgiven you for murder. I would have forgiven you for ignorance. What wouldn't he have forgiven if they had asked instead of expressed their hatred for him and murder of his people? What wouldn't he have forgiven for? But they were unwilling to repent. Because see, that's the criteria for forgiveness. is a willingness in repentance. That means not only confessing your sins, to the Lord, but also turning from those sins and going the opposite direction. Not only are they unwilling to repent, but they actually love the sin toward which they're walking. They love it. They don't love Him. That's why in Ezekiel's day they went after idols. That's why in their day they're going after righteousness through works of the law rather than by faith. Because they, they love their sin and they don't love God. So what is their punishment? He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. What is their house? What is their house that's left desolate? Well, he's standing in the middle of the temple courtyard. The house that he's referring to that he's standing in is the temple. But it is strange that he calls it your house, not his house. Why does he do that? Because remember just a couple of chapters ago, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and then he immediately walks into the temple, and he turns over the tables. And do you remember what he says when he turns over the tables? It's in Matthew 21, 13. He says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This is not his house anymore. 
You have turned it into something that it is not. You have turned it into the worship of idols. It's not my house. This is a pile of bricks. It's your house. The temple's ownership has changed hands again. Your house, he says, has been deserted. 600 years before, Ezekiel sees this vision sitting on a riverbank while he's in exile of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple and heading east. Now, I want you to grab hold of the image that Jesus is laying out here for, him, for them and that we're seeing the, the person telling them this, the person giving them this warning. Jesus is the living, breathing glory of God. The full weight of the presence and the majesty of God is standing right before them in the person of Jesus Christ. We see this in Colossians 1.19. Paul says, In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So here is the glory of God telling them your temple is empty. And what do we see just a couple of verses later? The first four words of chapter 24. You can look down there. Jesus leaves the temple. He's gone. Like in Ezekiel's day, the glory of God is departing. Their punishment is exile. Their punishment is is separation from the Lord. Like Adam in the Garden of Eden, like the Jews in Ezekiel's day, their punishment is removal from the presence of the Lord, or more precisely, the presence of the Lord's removal from them. But it's not all dark. I want us to look at the second thing, Israel's hope. Look at verse 39. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Alright? This verse stirs up a lot of debate amongst Christians. A lot of debate amongst Christians. Everybody wants to know what he's talking about. It seems as though Jesus uh, is predicting a time in the future when Jerusalem will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? You won't see me again until that day he doesn't tell us when precisely that day is, but he seems to allude to a day in the future when Jerusalem, or Israel maybe, will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, of course, I want you to remember that that just happened. Just a few chapters before this in Matthew, it just happened. In chapter 21, 9, the crowds, this is when Jesus is riding in on a donkey, the holiday we celebrate last week, Palm Sunday, he's riding in on a donkey, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so then, when Jesus says this, knowing that it just happened, we think to ourselves, when is this going to happen again? To what point in the future is he referring? Some have said, well, he's talking about his crucifixion and his resurrection. That on his, it, when he's crucified and he's resurrected, they're going to... You know, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus kind of alludes to some of this, it seems, in, in Matthew chapter 26, when he's talking to Caiaphas. And 
But the problem with it being the crucifixion and the resurrection is that, I don't know if you've read the crucifixion account, not too many people are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Instead, they're spitting on him, they're cursing him, they're jeering at him, they're saying a lot of different things. That doesn't seem to be what Jesus has in mind when he says, you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Literally the next time the crowds see him, he's being crucified, pretty much. doesn't seem to be what he has in mind. Well, then it must be his second coming. When he comes back, Lord returns. One day Jesus will return. Everyone will see him. Paul tells us that every knee will bow, every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. Well, surely that must be what Jesus is talking about, right? Well, not probably not. Because it's very strange in Revelation, John tells us that there's going to be lots of wicked people that are fleeing and that are crying out for the mountains and the rocks to fall on them because the fury of the wrath of the Lamb of God has come and who can stand in His presence? They're wanting to be hidden from His presence altogether. That doesn't really sound like blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Neither of these seem to fit. That's because what Jesus is saying here isn't prophecy about a future event. It's a condition. First, there's the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is how you know that. There's the phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This phrase doesn't apply exclusively to Jesus. It's taken from Psalm 118.26. And originally, it applied to the king of Israel. And the king of Israel has just received a military victory as a gift from the Lord. Israel was surrounded by all these armies, and the king, probably David, is crying out to the Lord, you have to do something about this. You have to save us. And Psalm 118 is a celebration over the fact that God has given to them a victory. And now the king comes back from war as this conquering soldier, and he's leading a band of Jewish people worshipers up to Mount Zion to the temple and he's knocking at the doors of the gates and he's telling the priest inside let me in because we've had victory the Lord has given us a victory and the priests on the inside as well as all of Jerusalem is to cry out to the messenger the king who's coming to report a victory blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord See, he's bearing the good news of what God has done, and they are to receive that bearer of good news with joy. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, Jesus, in this passage, has just condemned the scribes and the Pharisees in the passage that just precedes this one. He's given them the seven woes for killing the prophets and those who were sent to them. That's all in the past. All your forefathers, they all did this. They killed all the prophets and those who were sent to them. And he says, you're just like them. Now that's all Old Testament stuff. But then, he says something, if you'll just look up in your Bibles to 2334. He turns to the future. And he says, therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues 
and persecute from town to town. You killed all the people God has sent to you in the past. All the messengers of the good news of the kingdom of God, you killed them all in the past. And in the future, you're going to kill and persecute or otherwise ignore the messengers of the gospel, the good news that I'm going to send to you in the future. So he tells them, the glory of God is going to leave the temple like it did in Ezekiel's day, and you will not see the glory of God again until when? Until you receive the messengers that God sends to you with joy. You won't see the glory of God again until you receive these messengers of the gospel with joy. In other words, until the good news of your salvation actually sounds like good news to you. Until you're no longer bored to tears by the actual God of the universe. Until then, you won't see the glory of God. But you see, this is a glimmer of hope for Jerusalem. This is a glimmer of hope for the entire world. See, they're familiar with experiencing the separation from the Lord. It's latent throughout their history. But he says, all of that will change. Every bit of that will change. If you receive the message of the gospel with happiness. At that point, what we now know as a result of the book of Acts the glory of God is going to come dwell inside you once you receive the gospel with joy. Once you receive the good news of your salvation with gratitude, when you hear the good news of your salvation that has been given to you in Christ and you respond like Matthew 13, 44, like the man who found the treasure hidden in a field. You remember what he does? He finds the treasure hidden in a field and he Immediately realizing what he has in his salvation, he covers it up and in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to own the field until you receive the gospel like that. You will not see the glory of God again. In fact, I want to just say to you, that's the only way to receive the gospel. That's the only way Salvation can be yours. You realize that? I don't care how many times you have gotten in the baptistry. That can't save you. I don't care how many times you read your Bible or you pray. That cannot save you. I don't care how many times you've taken the Lord's Supper you've eaten the bread and drank from the cup, I don't care what church you are a member of, if you have not received the good news of your salvation with joy, you are not saved. What does it look like when someone receives the gospel with joy? Sitting in church and worshiping is a pleasure. That's what it looks like. That's 
So often we come and we, we sit here and we do the things that we're asked to do and we tolerate the preaching and we tolerate the singing or maybe, or we do this and that, but inside, here, in our heart, we're bored. And honestly, you just can't stand it. I'm worn out, I'm tired. I don't really care. I don't even understand what he's laying out here. It doesn't make any sense. You want people to think you're a Christian, so you have to come. All you're doing is the same thing the Jews did in Jesus' day. Same thing the Jews did in Ezekiel's day. Pretending that all God cares about is what's on the outside. I come to church, I sit down, I read my Bible, I, I do all the things that he asked me to do. You understand, outside and in, it's both. And unless you're receiving the gospel, the good news of your salvation with joy, you will experience eternal separation from the Lord. Not temporary, eternal. But when you hear that this same Jesus standing here in the midst of the Pharisees and scribes and leaders and his own disciples and all the other people that have come, the same Jesus in just a matter of days is going to walk forward up the hill called Golgotha and there he is going to die on the cross and on the cross something physical and spiritual happened. Physically he died Spiritually, he absorbed the wrath of God that I deserve. See, he lived a righteous life. He doesn't deserve the wrath of God. He lived a righteous life. And yet, instead of taking all the righteous rewards for himself, he instead suffered the death that I deserve. I deserve to be on that cross. And he suffered that for me. And instead, what does he do? He offers to me by faith his own righteous rewards so that on judgment day I can stand before God with Christ's righteousness in my stead. I don't have to own my own righteousness. I can own Christ's righteousness and let it stand in my place for me. When I hear that, when you hear that, how do you respond? See, that is the question. That's the question. How do you respond? Because believe it or not, many, many people, perhaps some in this room, and many people far and wide are bored by that idea. They think it's fake. It didn't happen. Or perhaps, I've heard that a thousand times, don't really care. What's that got to do with me? There is a day you're going to stand before the Lord, the God of judgment. And your experience of Him in Christ is pleasant, abundantly loving and merciful, who provided for you life you could never have provided for yourself. Or it could be wrath. But you're in the place of the Jews. You're heading toward 
You're hearing the good news of salvation in Jesus and you're rejecting it. Opting for your own brand of righteousness. Well, I think when I get there, God will just see my good deeds, weigh them against my bad deeds, and then he'll determine one way or the other where I should be, heaven or hell. I promise you that will be hell. There aren't enough good deeds. I can't do them. Do you think that your goodness can compare to the majesty of God? That's the standard he's measuring everything against. His own righteousness. Not yours. Not the righteousness of your neighbors. He's not going to say, well, your neighbor was this bad and you were only this bad, so you're getting in because your neighbor sets a new bar for bad. That's not how he measures it. It's not as though Hitler, he's for sure in hell, but the rest of us, we're not as bad as Hitler, we're in heaven. He measures righteousness. Not bad, not evil, he measures righteousness. And he measures it against himself. You're not going to measure up. None of us are. But repentance is the criteria. That's the criteria for experiencing and being in the presence of the glory of God ever and always. Brothers and sisters, those of you who have decided you are following Christ and He is your joy, He is your treasure, I want you to notice in this passage the balance that Jesus strikes here. There's a fine balance. You can't sacrifice one for the other. The balance is uncompromising truth on the one side, and unrelenting compassion on the other side. Uncompromising truth on the one side, and unrelenting compassion on the other. See, Jerusalem's condemnation that he gives to them is just. The condemnation, the woes that he gives to them is just, but do you notice what he also does? He laments and pleads for them to repent. See, the posture of our church should always be striking that balance perfectly. That's our goal. As we provide a witness, not only for those that would come into our assembly, but as we go out and we live our daily lives from this afternoon all the way through Saturday, that balance that we're trying to strike is on the one side never compromising the truth. And always preaching the gospel. And always looking in the word to say, is this what God counts as sin? So that we can flee from all kinds of immorality. That we would never pursue it. And we would never condone anyone pursue it. But then on the other side, always demonstrating unrelenting compassion. Because we remember that we too are in the position of sinners saved by the grace of God. Not better than you. I'm there with you. Christ, He's better. Don't follow me, follow Christ. Don't come to me, come to Christ. That's where I am. That's where I want to be. And if you want life, come there. Because I'm with you. 
I'm in the muck and the mire, and I'm tempted there every single day. Some days I give in. Every day I give in to some things. And the only reason that I rejoice on a day like Easter is because I believe in the one who rose bodily from the grave. It's to him I give my allegiance. All the joy that I could possibly ever have is found in the resurrected Christ. So join me there at the empty tomb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we consider what you have done in sending Jesus to die in our place, as you really think about that, that you would break the bonds of sin that remain in our hearts, the areas of our life that are still attracted to light and momentary pleasures, things that bring only temporary joy, I pray that you would break all of those bonds that remain. Christian and non-Christian alike, I pray that if anyone in this room, Lord, you know, in their heart, struggles with joy in being here, in worshiping your name, in giving their allegiance to you, pray that you would break the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. All of this can only happen by the work of your Spirit. Your Word tells us that time and again. So we pray that you would move in the hearts of every person in this room and give them the gift of repentance. Pray this in Jesus' name.